then find in your Bibles, Revelation 3, and our Savior's letter to the church of the Laodiceans, and that's, of course, verse 14 and following. Now, unlike the previous letter, letters, there's simply no way I can sufficiently examine this final letter in one week, and so what we're going to do is to consider it in two parts. We'll see verses 14 to 18 this week, and then, God willing, 19 to 22 next week. So we read beginning at verse 14. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Well, we'll cease our reading right there, and as I've said, come next week, God willing, to verses 19 and following. And so in verses 14 to 18, we fundamentally have three things. We have a description in verse 14, we have a condition in verses 15 to 17, and then a provision for that condition in verse 18. But before we come to verse 14 in our Savior's description, let me just say something about the church of the Laodiceans. William Henriksen said, Laodicea was especially famous for its wealth. And we're going to see that that's going to be key here in a moment. Located at the confluence of three great highways, it grew up rapidly into a great commercial and financial center. It was the home of the millionaires. Now, of course, William Hendrickson wrote that some years ago, so we would probably say at least the home of the billionaires. But nevertheless, the fact that it was full of physical or earthly riches is a very important point to keep in mind. All right, notice then a description. These things as the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Again, our Savior describes himself in ways that suited for the particular church. And in fact, he describes himself in a threefold way. First as the amen. Now, you probably know the Greek word translated here, amen, it simply or literally means truly, and it refers to something true or trustworthy. And it's for this reason that if you were to add your amen to something, you're saying it's true. That's a true statement. It's a trustworthy statement. It's here used of Christ as God's amen. It's used 
of Christ as the Father's confirmation of all that he's promised in that everything the Father has promised is true and trustworthy. Christ is the Father's amen. At the end of every promise of God in the Bible, there's Jesus, the amen. 1 Corinthians 1.20, For all the promises of God are in him, that is in Christ, yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. All of the promises of God are followed by the amen. There's a sense in which Christ is the amen behind every promise that God has ever made to his beloved people in the Bible. Simply put, all of God's promises are fulfilled in Jesus. All of God's promises are yea and amen in him. Sam Storm said he himself is the validation, the ratification, the confirmation of all that God has said and promised he will do for his beloved children. It's really a very beautiful title, isn't it? The Amen. But then the next two go together, faithful and true witness. And these are closely related, and yet they have to be distinguished. The faithful refers to his own faithfulness. He's faithful to his father, to his nature, to his word, and to his people. He's faithful. True witness refers to his faithfulness in testifying of his Father and his gracious plan of salvation. He is the true witness because no one can testify of the Father to the degree or in the way he can because he's eternally in the bosom of the Father. And so he is the faithful one and that he's faithful to himself, to his Father, to his promises, And he's the true witness, that is, he's come down to tell us about God. And he's trustworthy. Everything he says, brethren, is trustworthy. Now the next and the last description of him is the most difficult, but perhaps the most beautiful. The beginning of the creation of God. Now to begin with, this phrase doesn't mean as Heretics have assumed, for example, Arius in the 4th century used this text to supposedly prove that Christ was a mere creature. But of course we believe that this text doesn't mean that Christ is a mere creation and thus at one time had no existence. The Greek word rendered beginning means... First cause or origin. First cause or origin. The cause of something, the beginning. It's beginning, it's origin, it's source. The start or beginning of something. This is what the term means. Thus, Christ is the beginning of creation. Not because he began at creation, but because he began creation. Let me say that again. Christ is the beginning of creation, not because he began at creation, but because he began creation. He's the cause of creation. 
Now, brethren, this doesn't deny that his human body was created. When asked the question, was Christ a created being, you have to say, what do you mean? We totally affirm the fact that his human nature is not eternal. It came from Mary. But with regards to his divinity, brethren, and that's what Arius denied. Arius denied that according to his divine nature, he was eternal. He believed he was created, a created, exalted being. But this text says he is the cause or ruler over, notice first, the first creation. And by first creation, I mean the physical creation, when the heavens and the earth were created. For example, Colossians 1.16, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. This is another way of saying he is the beginning of the first creation. Christ, as the eternal begotten Son of God, is the source of all creation. He's the beginning of the first, and then secondly, the new creation. And by new creation, we're talking about redemption. You know that the scriptures sometimes speak of salvation or redemption as a recreation. You find it all throughout the Old Testament prophets, especially in Isaiah. And then, of course, you find it in that classic text of uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If any man be in Christ, behold, all things have, old things have passed away. All things have become new. He is a new creation. In fact, if you go a little further in Colossians 1, 18, we read this. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning. Watch, Paul says something very similar here. Colossians 1.18. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He is the cause, the source of the second creation. That simply means he's the cause of our salvation. All of our salvation happens because of him. Just as everything came into existence in Genesis 1.1, through and in him, so all of salvation comes into existence because of him. So he's the cause. Again, this term beginning means cause, but it also means ruler, chief, sovereign. He's the beginning. He's the cause or the ruler of both creations. Brother, it's actually a tremendous text. It's a tremendous text to underscore Jesus' divinity and sovereignty. Somewhat ironic that the very text used by the enemies of the church to disprove Jesus' divinity is in fact a text that very clearly proves his divinity. Now my question is this. I said that, uh, remember, Jesus describes himself to the seven churches in imagery or with language borrowed from the first chapter, and you find this language back in the first chapter. And he selects from the first chapter Descriptions of him to especially help the individual churches. So how does this threefold description of Jesus help the church of the Laodiceans? Well, let me just suggest a couple ways. First of all, to remind them of his integrity. 
That is, Christ is worthy of their trust in every possible way. They can trust his assessment of them. They can trust the fact that he counsels them to buy from him all of the resources that they need. They thought of themselves one thing, as we're going to see. They thought they were pretty good. They thought they were doing okay. They thought themselves to be sufficient. But in fact, Christ has come and it has come and, and is saying something very opposite to that. And he says, but believe what I'm telling you because of who I am. These things, says the amen, the faithful and true witness. Brethren, as we're going to see next week, in verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. In other words, these, these words, this letter, are the words of a faithful friend. Remember what the Bible says. Faithful are the wounds or the blows of a friend. He's proving himself to be faithful to them. He's correcting them, and he's speaking exceedingly plain. But also, I think, to remind them of his centrality. That is, Christ is sovereign over all things, both the first and the new creations. And as we're going to see, they were very self-sufficient. They thought the world evolved around them. And Jesus starts the letter off by saying, in short, it doesn't. It evolves around me. Because I'm the beginning of the first and the new creation. All right, that brings me then to their condition, verse 15 to 17. And he identifies basically two things about that condition. First, in verses 15 and 16, they were lukewarm. And then in 17, self-sufficient. Notice first, they were lukewarm, verse 15. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. Now, let me just say... He three times mentions the, the fact they were neither cold nor hot. What does that mean? Well, it means one of two things. The older writers tended to interpret it like this. Cold and hot, okay? They tend to think of cold as not good, hot as good, right? That's, I think, how most people tend to think of it when they read it. And then somebody might say, well, why does he say in verse 16 uh, or at the end of verse 15, I could wish you were cold or hot? Why would he wish them to be in a good or bad condition? Well, they would say this view that uh, he basically is saying, I would rather if you're a hypocrite and you're cold, just come out and own it and acknowledge it. I'd rather you be cold or hot. I'd rather you be hot. And that's the whole goal of the letter. But I would rather you, well, in one sense, I guess it's true, isn't it? You have to realize you're cold be, before you can become hot. That's a, a very old view, and it's a possibility. I, I tend to prefer the second option. That is this. Because both cold and, and hot water have uses, he's saying I would rather you be hot because hot water is useful or cold because cold water is useful, but lukewarm water has no use. And that's a very more modern, but I think a very possible interpretation. Because cold and hot water have purposes, 
You drink the cold and you use the hot. Jesus is saying, I would rather you be one or the other, but you're neither. In other words, you're useless. I could wish you were cold or hot because both have their purposes or uses. Thus, to be lukewarm is to be good for nothing. Uh, a more, well, it's actually an older term we use. They were nominal Christians. Nominal Christians. They were useless. They were indifferent. They were unconcerned. They had no use. Verse 16, so then because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. And obviously, brother, this is a very strong imagery, isn't it? We vomit what's repulsive or disgusting to us. There's, no way we, there's really no way to get around it. And it's like you might would vomit out uh, lukewarm water. I mean, uh, it's something that's, that's not beneficial to you. Perhaps we could even say it's repulsive. And so, obviously, it speaks about his rejection of them, his, uh, his absolute rejection of them. Now, before we move on to verse 17 and the other half of their description, of Jesus' description of them, let me just somewhat quickly suggest a few ways in which this indifference might manifest itself. And uh, as I think about these three, I can testify, unfortunately, that these often plague Christians quite regularly. And the first is a prolonged disinterest in God. A prolonged disinterest. It's not that you miss your Bible time on Monday, or even you miss your Bible time on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Nor is it that you have a bad week. But when months turn into months, turn into months into months of chronic disinterest, then, brethren, it's potential, at least potential, that you're becoming lukewarm. Chronic or prolonged disinterest in God when you have to just force yourself to go to church. Now, again, that happens. Trust me, it happens all the time. But prolonged, when you have to force yourself to read the Bible, when you have to force yourself to pray, and again, brethren, it happens all the time, quite frankly, to be honest. Out of the, I don't, out of the 15 times I read my Bible in a week, probably 10 of them I have to chide myself to get up and get going. But when there's prolonged disinterest, where you simply have lost all real, lively interest in the things of God, brother, that's not a good thing. That's not a good place to be. A waning, secondly, a waning dependence upon God. You find yourself all too often it used to be an exception, but now it's more like the rule. Trusting yourself. Looking within as opposed to without. Thirdly, a declining affection for God. Going through the motions. 
And again, brethren, we do it. Don't get me wrong, I get it. But these are all prolonged. These are all, these are all habitual, sad evidences of a lukewarm state. Now we find in verse 17 actually the cause of lukewarmness. I mean, this is what I love about our Savior. So, so perfect. Somebody might ask, well, what's a cause or the causes of lukewarmness? Well, here it is, verse 17, self-sufficiency. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, obviously, brethren, our Savior doesn't here necessarily mean that they were verbalizing this to others. I don't understand this to mean they were going to church and sitting alongside each other. Then after, maybe after the sermon, one turns to the other one and says, you know what, I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. Oh, you too, brother. Me too. No, this is what they were believing, knowingly or not, in their heart. This is what they were saying in their heart. So there's a, a foolish confession or profession, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. Brother, just stop and think. That's what these professing Christians were saying in their hearts and in their lives. And, they, and then there's an ignorance. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable. That speaks of condition, right? They were wretched and miserable. And here's the reasons why. They were poor, blind, and naked. Spiritually. They were probably very wealthy. And that's in part, part of the problem here. They were trusting in their worldly riches or their finances or their situations in life. They didn't need anything in terms of that. They had their, I don't know what you even call it, their bank accounts on full. Let me put it like that. They had the newest cars and the biggest flat screen TVs. They had the newest cell phones. It's just one up than the flip phone, I think. Right? Is there something past the flip phone by now? <laughs> they had it all, brother. But the problem was, it wasn't that they were physically sufficient. Because there likely were some in the church who possibly wasn't. But the problem was, they allowed their physical possessions to hold a place in their heart that they were never intended to have. Right? It goes back to that famous statement of Paul. The love of money is the root of all evil. It's the love of it. It's not necessarily the possession of it, right? But it's the love of it. That's the problem. And that's why Paul put it like this to Timothy, chapter 6 and 7, verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present age, and by rich he means uh, physically, financially. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty. See, there's a direct connection, at least a possible connection, between haughtiness and wealthiness. And then, nor to trust in uncertain riches... Why are they uncertain riches? Because they're tied to this world. 
They can be gone tomorrow, all of them, every single penny, brethren. And they will be gone eventually, right, when we get buried. But in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. In other words, it's not wrong to have good things, the good things of this world, as long as you enjoy them from the hand of God. And as long as they don't usurp a place in our hearts and affections that they were never intended to have. And so the point is, they were self-sufficient. Yes, probably many of them, if not the majority of them, were physically rich. And they allowed that to be translated into a self-sufficiency. Brother, and, and you guys know that, it's easy to look at what you have and to get haughty and say, look what I've done. Look what I've created. And then to look at the guy next to you and say, wow, look what he has. In comparison, look at me. But brethren, some of the most prideful, foolish, arrogant, ignorant, wicked people I've known are the poorest people in the world. To put it as, as plainly as I can. I don't think I can put any plainer than that. So it's, it's just all about heart disposition. The church largely was filled with people who were self-sufficient. They didn't know they were wretched and miserable because they were spiritually poor, blind, and naked. All right? Now we come to Jesus' provision, verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Brethren, truly these are the riches that we all need. The first thing that needs to be underscored by way of introduction to this verse is that our Savior's provision perfectly matches the church's need. Everything they lacked, he possessed. Remember, they were poor, blind, and naked. Those are the three. And because they were poor, blind, and naked, they were wretched and miserable. But their wretchedness was due to this threefold need. They were poor, poor, blind, and naked. And thus he provides them with what? Gold to remedy their poverty. Garments to remedy their nakedness. I solve to remedy their blindness. In other words, Christ has everything his church needs. Another thing that I want to mention by way of introduction is our Savior assumes the role of counselor. I counsel you. He doesn't command them, though he does command them. Well, he commands them in the next verse. Uh, well, is it verse uh, 19? He tells them to uh, be zealous and repent. Those are commands. He commands his church because he's the king of the church. But brethren, here's the, the interesting fact. He takes the posture of a counselor. A counselor gives advice, right? Advises. That's what a counselor does. He gives advice. Here our Savior gives his church the best advice. I counsel you, buy from me. You want to make a good investment? Here's a, here's a 
here's a counselor. Here's some advice for you. Buy from me. Yeah, you have gold. You have worldly riches. You're doing well in terms of, uh, of, of doubling that and tripling that. But here's eternal riches that you can only buy. And that's my third thought by way of introduction to verse 18. Jesus tells them that they have to buy directly from him. There isn't many places where they can get this fine gold or this white garments or this eye soft. It's all in him. You have to come to him. He says, I counsel you to buy from me. Now, we have to go quickly through these three things. Fine gold. Now, by fine gold, of course, is meant pure gold. It's fine gold. It's pure gold. And it refers to the spiritual riches of the gospel of Jesus Christ in God the Father. For example, think of this text, Ephesians 3.8. Paul is there described as one set aside to be a minister to the Gentiles. And notice what he gets to preach or offer to the Gentiles. Ephesians 3.8. The unsearchable riches of Christ. Unsearchable. It means there's a whole lot of riches there. That's what it means. An endless supply of riches. Brother, you can take all of the gold and silver and, and precious stones in the whole world, yea, a hundred million trillion worlds, and they won't compare to the riches that's found in Christ. So I think by fine gold is meant the spiritual riches that we find in Jesus, all right? And then I want to suggest to you that probably he then gives us two such riches as examples, okay? The next one is white garments, or the first of the two is white garments. And by white garments are meant the perfect righteousness of Christ. The perfect righteousness of Christ. And then look how he puts it, verse 18. And white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. Now he's talking spiritually here. And this is the point. Wickedness is shameful. And we're going to see in a moment that we have to feel and know that. Our shame. They didn't know it, but they were shameful. I didn't know I was shameful for the first 26 years of my life. Until God opened my eyes with his eye solve, as we'll see here in a moment. And I saw it. I saw it for what it was. I saw my sins as shameful before God. And I needed something to cover me from it. To cover over my nakedness. And brethren, what can cover a soul's nakedness but the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ? Christ's righteousness is perfect. It covers the whole soul from head to toe. Covers the nakedness of a sinner. And then I saw, and I think there's a, a, a natural order here. Because as I said, you don't see 
your need for white garments. You don't come to appreciate the fine gold of Jesus' riches until your eyes have been opened. Eye salve was a common medicine for the eyes, and, and, and some commentators suggested that it was made there in that particular city. And it here, of course, refers to the anointing or the powerful ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me show you this very quickly. Look back to John 9 and notice verse 38. Now, let me just say, too, something that I want to mention next week, uh, but uh, something that I've said all along with regards to the other churches Jesus is addressing his professing people. And his professing people are made up of, necessarily, two kinds of people. There were those who were not Christians, truly. And then there were those who were truly Christians. And that latter category had some who were healthy and some who were not. This church, it appears that the majority of the people fell into one of those first two categories. They were either hypocrites or they were backslidden Christians. But the remedy, brethren, for either hypocrisy in the fullest sense or a backslidden, unhealthy spiritual state by a Christian is the same. That is to buy from Jesus gold, white garments, and eye salve. So my point here is this. These people were either fully blind, that is, they were not Christians, or they were partially blind, that is, they were Christians who were in a bad spiritual way. This text that I'm turning you to here is is a reference to the first, non-Christians. John 9, look at 38. Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. Now that sounds kind of odd, doesn't it? For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see. Well, that's kind of easy to explain. He's come to give sight, spiritual sight to the blind, right? He's, He's come by his spirit to anoint Blind eyes, right? But notice the next phrase. And that those who see, this is the judgment part, may be made blind. This is a judicial blindness. Seeing they won't see, okay, because they refuse to see, he's going to leave them in their blindness. That's what it means. He doesn't have to make them blind. They're already blind. He doesn't have to put, he doesn't have to impart into the sinner blindness, When God blinds somebody, brethren, he just simply leaves them as they are. He doesn't have to do anything to them. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words, verse 40, and said to him, Are we blind also? 41, Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. That is, if you acknowledge your blindness, you wouldn't have additional sin. If you humbled yourself and you came to know, like Jesus is telling the, uh, the, his church in our text, if you would come to know your blindness, you wouldn't be judicially blinded. And then he says, but now you say we see, that is, 
They refuse to own their blindness and they profess to see, right? Therefore, your sin remains. In other words, he was going to blind them further, which means he was going to leave them to themselves as a judgment for their refusal to acknowledge their need of a Savior. Well, brethren, the whole point here in Revelation 3.18 is this. We have to acknowledge our spiritual blindness, and we have to acknowledge that the remedy to it is in him. I solve. Now let me close with four observations about the gospel. And the first is this, the necessity of both the law and the gospel. Sinners and saints must know two things. And, and I say sinner and saints because there were sinner and saints in the church, no doubt. And both the sinners and the saints needed to know two things. And one was a lesson from the law, the other a lesson from the gospel. The law in its most concise form is the Ten Commandments. And that uh, law, of course, is expanded upon throughout the entirety of the, of the Bible. And the law is a mirror that shows us our sin and it shows us what we deserve. And so the law has to come first to show us, and, th and this takes me back to what Jesus said of them in verse 17, to show us our wretched, miserable condition. Look what Jesus says. You do not know, you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind. Well, where do they learn that from? They learn it from the law. They learn it from the law because the law in the hand of God shows us our sin and shows us our wretched and miserable condition. Because it's, it, the law says, look, this is what you need to get right with God, perfection. And then the poor soul begins to look at himself or herself and say, I don't have it. In other words, they're made to know that they're poor. They're poor in spirit. How does a person become poor? How does a person come to know and to feel their poverty before God? It's in and through the holy law of God. The law says if you want to go to heaven and you want to get right, this is all you have to do. Obey the law in every single instance from conception to the grave. And then you have to do something about your original sin that you get from Adam. So somehow you have to get to heaven and erase that from the books. But that's all you have to do. That's what the law says. And that makes us to know our wretchedness. Our miserable condition and our poverty. Our utter poverty before God. And then the gospel comes. Brother, this is as, <laughs> verse 17 is the law. Verse 18 is the good news. You see, verse 18 isn't good news until verse, nine, or, or until verse 17 is believed. Right? I mean, verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold and garments and eyesolve to remedy your problem that you've come to know through the law, verse 17. And so both have to be preached and in that order. Sinners have to know their guilt 
and filth, and they have to know the remedy for both in Christ. Secondly, the sufficiency of the gospel. As I've already said, brethren, everything saints and sinners need is fully and entirely found in Christ. Here's where you have to look, sinner, to remedy your plight. Here's where you have to look, poor Christian, who's backslidden. Here's where you have to go to remedy your present lukewarmness. You have to go to the one who says, in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me. Thirdly, the sincerity of the gospel. I counsel you to buy from you. This, I, I, this is really taken from this word that, that's reoccurring in, in verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. That, that's a, brother, that's actually a beautiful word. There, there's no bad words in the Bible. They're all good words. And this is one of the most beautiful ones. It just kind of is lost for the sake of the, the trees around it. That is a purpose clause, right? In order that. That's what it means. In other words, Jesus isn't playing games with the sinner or the saint. He's saying, look, if you come to me and buy from me gold within a fire, you'll be rich. There, there's no uncertainty about it. That's my point. And white garments, here's our word again, that you may be clothed. That, that's actually added by the translators, the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, and here comes our word again for the third time, that you may see. Brethren, simply put, there's salvation in Jesus for every single sinner who comes. The gospel is a sincere, a sincere message of salvation. Jesus isn't playing with sinners. Jesus isn't saying to sinners, if you come, there may be something for you. If you're sorrow, sorrowful enough, if you're good enough, if you're elect, no. If you're wretched and miserable, if you're poor, blind, and naked, come and there'll be remedy for you in Christ. Jesus said the same thing back in Proverbs, if you remember. Those who seek me diligently, those who seek me diligently shall find me. And then he says this, riches and honor are with me, enduring riches and righteousness. You get him, you get it all. Perhaps that's another way of saying it. If you get Christ, you get his riches. If you get Christ, you get his riches, his garments, and his eyes salve. Finally, the absolute freeness of the gospel. And let me end our study by pointing you to this beautiful little English word as well. Verse 18, by, B-U-I, <laughs> B-U-I, B-U-Y. I counsel you to buy. From me. That's Latin. B U I. That's a Latin spelling. B U Y. Why does our Savior tell them to buy from him? I, I think in the first place it's probable because they come from that merchant context and they were buying and selling and getting rich. 
He said, come buy, come, come trade with me. But you have to rinse your mind of any notion that you need something to buy these riches with. I think basically there's two reasons we must buy, according to Isaiah 55.1, without money. That, that's how Isaiah puts it, do you remember? Ho, oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, you who have no money. See, really, the, the only requirement is to know you have nothing to buy with. You who have no money, listen, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. There's two reasons I, I suggest we must buy without money. First, sinners haven't anything to buy with. And secondly, what we're buying is of infinite value. How can you buy the unsearchable riches of Christ? Now, brethren, the only thing that's a qualification, if you want to use that term and you have to be careful to use it, is that you have nothing to buy with. You have to come with empty hands as a poor, needy beggar. And every person, sinner and saint, who comes with empty hands, based upon the one who says, I am, remember what he said? The I am, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. If you come to him and by, I assure you, dear brethren, based upon his own testimony, you will leave with your pockets. Well, we want to close by singing. You know what, Mike? We don't really. How about we forego that and just sing a shorter? That was a kind of a.